Good morning, everybody. It's great to be back. I guess you all have been back, but I'm my first time back since we've uh, been on a break a little bit from physically meeting together. Um, it's good to see all of you. I uh, just want to say that today's uh, lesson is being brought to you by the English Teachers of America, which is just taking a page out of the old Perry Home Companion, um, because what we're talking about today is really one word. It's the word like, like. And you all have experience with that word, some of you from long, long ago, some of you from more recently. For the long, long ago among you, uh, you remember like because you remember this little jingle that just drilled into your brain as a small child watching one of three channels on TV. Winston tastes good like a cigarette should, yeah, like a cigarette should. Is that really proper grammar? I mean, we're being presented today by the English teachers of America. Uh, Winston tastes good like a cigarette should. That's really using like inappropriately, at least back in the early 1950s they thought it was inappropriate because it's not a conjunction. It's primarily a preposition or a verb, um, or it could be an adjective, but no, no, not a conjunction. This is very wrong. And so Winston, of course, predictably came back with, what do you want, good grammar or good taste? So some of you remember that. Others of you are looking blankly at me at this point. What is Winston, for one? Uh, Churchill? What? Uh, no, it was a cigarette back when cigarettes were cool. Um, so anyway, all right, but for those of you then are looking blankly, let me bring you up to speed and let's take the others and let them be looking blankly at how like is not just misused as a conjunction, it can be misused even as an adverb or more appropriately really as a filler, just a filler, the way that now like is misused regularly. A few years ago, there was a program on NPR, uh, All Things Considered, an interview with the author of a new book, The Evasion English Dictionary. And the interview uh, was trying to understand now what is, how, what is an evasion? Evasion is a way of saying something different than what you really mean. And the chief of all the evasions is that one four-letter word, like. And so this author came up with nine different ways in which like is used in a way that's unrecognizable to the um, English majors of America. Uh, For example, uh, the avoid appearing smart like. Uh, I think he meant it like metaphorically, or I I feel like that's by uh, like Beethoven, you don't want to come across as a know-it-all, like, oh, that's Beethoven, or, you know, that, that's metaphor. No, you can't say that. You say it's like metaphor, like, like, show a little uncertainty there. Don't be too, uh, too smart. Um, when you're estimating, and that's another use of like, well, there were like 500 people at Amen Bible Study. You know, you're estimating. You're not a very good estimator, but you're estimating. That's maybe more forgivable. Uh, how about the, the self-effacing like, a little bit like the appearing, not appearing smart like. Um, I don't want to like betray her trust, but you know what's coming, right? But I'm going to, uh, I like, I like care about the environment and stuff. So like gets used a lot of times. Uh, the cowardly like, uh, I don't want to like tell you what to do, but You're just kind of evading. You're you're not wanting to just come right out and say, this is it. Or the filler-like. This takes the place of all of those from that earlier era of the Winston commercial who used to say, um, because you didn't know quite what to say yet. Now you just say like. Uh, It it was like, it it was like, you know, you you never finished a sentence. It's just kind of, it was like, and that's supposed to take care of it. Well, what is the proper use of like? Uh, There are a lot of different proper uses, I guess, and I'm probably not qualified to tell you what all the proper uses are, but I can tell you the most common use of like, it is in that figure of speech called a simile. A simile is a comparison between two unlike things, but making some comparison between them to jog our memories into new understanding or new appreciation um, for what, what they were like. You know, Butch and Sundance were like brothers. You got to know who Butch was, Butch Cassidy's Sundance kid, but they, they were like brothers. They weren't like brothers. They were, you know, big old outlaws in the Old West, but, but they, they had a relationship that made them like 
um, like brothers. Or Song of Solomon, you know, your hair is like a flock of goats descending Mount Gilead. Uh, flock of goats descending Gilead and your hair not quite the same. But try it with your wife, you know, just see how that works. And maybe she'll go for it. Or you might want to go more with, you know, your breasts are like uh, fawns, you know, like deer, like a little baby deer. And she may look at you funny and, yeah. But if you, if you were around a lot of deer, you'd understand that metaphor, that simile. It's what is like. Well, today we come to Matthew chapter 25. And the key to understanding chapter 25 is just to see how it's broken out. That's relatively easy. There are three distinct sections there, three distinct similes. And they're all introduced by like. Well, except the last one. It doesn't use like, but... It says as. Hey, but now you can interchange like and as however you want, according to the old grammarians that critiqued the Winston commercial. So I think it still works if we're going to just say like, like, like. Jesus gives us three similes in Matthew 25, 1 through 46. And those three similes are designed to help us understand the kingdom of heaven. And we all need some help understanding the kingdom of heaven because it's such a big topic, such a big concept. I mean, of course, in the other gospels, it would be the kingdom of God. Matthew distinctively goes with kingdom of heaven. And you know all about that by this point in your study through Matthew. But it's a big idea. What is the kingdom? And we learn some things that are absolutely crucial today. Some of the most important things, important for me personally, and then important for all of us just as Christians, just what must I do to be saved? Because this chapter is going to end with those that are saved and those that are damned. So what do I have to do to be saved? If we don't get that answer right, uh, we could be damned. If we don't get that answer right, we may cause other people to be damned because we give them an answer that will end them up in hell rather than the true answer. So we really need to understand this stuff. What I propose to do is that we read it in sections. We'll read the whole chapter, but we're going to do it in sections, and we're going to follow each of these likes as we, um, as we go along. So first, Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. The kingdom of heaven is like ten bridesmaids. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy, and they slept. But at midnight, there was the cry, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, well, since there won't be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The way Jesus gives us this parable, this extended simile, saying that the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, um, is that he tells us first, in the first five verses, what uh, it will be like before the groom comes. He sets the scene, oh, it's a wedding weekend, this is awesome, and here's how this wedding would go out in the first century in Palestine, and maybe we know a little bit of background on that, but we really don't have to know much background about that. We know what a, a wedding is a joyful uh, experience, a great time, and in this reception, um, it was at night, and they needed their torches to get to the procession from the place where the bride's um, family lived, where the wedding had taken place, now they're going over to the groom's place, and that's where the honeymoon will begin, and there'll be the party, and whatever, so we've got to get over there for the party, for the reception, um, after the wedding, and so you get the scene, right? There are ten bridesmaids there. They're responsible for having the torches, having oil, and the groom's delayed at the bride's home, apparently, and so they're 
wondering if we're going to run out of oil. Well, five of those bridesmaids thought, you know, we don't know exactly how long this is going to take. We better take some extra oil because these lamps go out. We've got to keep these rags soaked in oil in order to keep the flame going, and it'll go out, and so we're going to need new oil. And so they made provision. And five of the bridesmaids said, oh, it's just so happy and her dress pretty and all that. They just they didn't even think about the future much. And so when midnight came and they realized, gosh, we don't have enough oil to get the rest of the way, then uh, they said, hey, let us borrow some of yours. And they go, we, we can't do that or we'll run out of oil. So we got to have enough to light the way a little bit. Like, go to the place where it's, it's midnight, right? Who's open at midnight? I mean, you know, the 24-7, and it was kind of like a 24-7 back then because it's just, you know, Lazar Wolf, who's in charge of the oil for the village, and everybody knows him. We just wake him up and get some oil. And so they go off to wake up Lazar Wolf to get some, some oil and... Um, before they can get back, the grooms come. And, oops, that, that was bad. So when the groom comes, in uh, verse 6 and through verse 10, at midnight, there's the cry, here's the groom, it's, he's here. So the wise got up, trimmed their lamps, so they all did, and then the foolish said, oh, we don't have enough, we've already been through all of that, so that's good. So what happens after the groom comes, verse 10? While they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came to him, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I don't know you. Wow, that's harsh. Or it seems harsh. Really? You don't even know us? What, what is the point, Lord? Now we're, I get the parable, but that seems awfully harsh that they are shut out from the whole celebration and shut out in such a way as to say, I've never known you. I've never experienced relationship with you. You've never really been part of this wedding party. Like, no, don't you know us? Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? In your name, did we not cast out demons? In your name, did we not perform many miracles? And I tell you, now speaking from Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is saying the same, that Lord, Lord thing, Matthew chapter 7, he says, I tell you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That something happened here that revealed the true character of five bridesmaids versus the other five bridesmaids. So what's the point of the parable? Yeah, what is the point? Well, he gives it to us pretty clearly in verse 13, doesn't he? When Jesus says, truly I say to you, well, it says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. We're going to see in these parables a good deal about what George loves to talk about, that what we know, and then what we are, and then what we do. There's a lot of knowing and being and doing here. In fact, the doing that is the point of this parable, keep watch, is predicated upon the being. Be ready. And that being ready is predicated on the knowing. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. So we have to be ready always. We live our lives conscious that Jesus' return could be at any time. Or if you have a hard time with that, but given your particular eschatology, your view of the last things in Scripture, you can at least say, I could die at any time. I don't know when I'm going to breathe my last breath. It may be on my way out of here, I'll have a heart attack and drop dead. Or I could have a car accident on the way to work and drop dead. I don't know. I need to be ready at any time to meet my Lord. I need to be ready to give an account for what I've done in the body, whether it was good or whether it was worthless. I need to be ready. So, since I don't know when Jesus is coming back, therefore I will be ready. And because I am wanting to be ready, I will keep watch. What I know informs or even determines what I am. What I am will inform or determine what I do. Be ready. Maybe that's the simple message for each one of us today. Be ready. Be ready. Let's push on. We have another simile to look at, another parable in verses 14 through 30, a familiar one one that's been really influential in my life for good or for ill because I'm not sure I've understood it correctly, and so I'm hoping I got it now. Let's see what it says. 
For it, the kingdom of heaven again, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one, he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went, dug in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Well, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him, who, from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whew. That sounds a little bit harsh too. How does this story break down? Well, verses 14 through 18 give us what's going on before the master returns with these three different money managers. We have some money managers in this room, I feel sure. I hope you're nervous right now. Yeah, this is, and you can help us, the rest of us, understand this well. If I were really following the analogy, I guess I would call the, the one who's coming back to check on you the client. But client doesn't really get, do it justice here. It really is. It's the master. It's the, you know, the client's the master of the boss, so to speak. But, but not really in our day and age, in our culture, that analogy isn't as good as if it really were your master who entrusted you with some serious responsibility, and now he's come back to see what kind of return you have brought on his investment. So before the master returns, uh, he gives money to each of these um, servants of his, these money managers, and he gives it to them according to his ability. So one guy's got great bandwidth. He says, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave five talents here with you and uh, see what you can do with them. And then another one, you know, I, I'm not going to put as much stress on that guy because he's, he's a two-talent guy. I'm going to be able to do that. And then there's one guy I don't really know kind of where he stands, but I'll give one talent to him and we'll see what he does with it. And so it's not based on the gross amount that they came back with, it's based on proportion. What kind of return on investment did I get? I got this amazing return on investment with the guy with the five talents, the guy with the two talents, not so much with the guy with the one talent. But anyway, we'll see all that later. Before the master returns, he spreads out his money, not according to um, equality, but according to ability that he had for them. Now, when he returns in verse 19, that's when he asks for the accounting from each one that they're going to come and give an account of what they did with it. And so it's very parallel there, right? You know, each one kind of reports in and sees what he, what he has come up with. And then after uh, he returns, verse 28, what's the result after the meeting and the report? Well, the result is take the talent from this guy and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast that servant into the outer darkness. Wow, what's that saying? That sounds like a picture of hell to me. That's how hell is described in so many other places in Matthew 
where that same expression, weeping and gnashing of teeth, deep regret, deep sorrow, deep uh, anger even, it's a mingling of all of the above. I'm so mad that I'm here in hell. I'm so sorry I should have done this other thing, but not really. There's no real repentance there. It's just this weeping and gnashing of teeth in complete darkness for the light of the world is not there. Sad. Hard. What's the point of the comparison? That's, that's what we need to know, and that's what we do know. In a simile, it's not broad and left to the imagination to see what the comparison is. It is specific. It's one point, and that's how we ought generally to interpret parables. We're looking for the one point of the parable to help it make sense to us, and I think that that point is um, compo- uh, contained in verse 29. To everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. We've been given gifts by our Lord Jesus, our master. He's given gifts to everybody by virtue of creation. We all have. And isn't it interesting, the evolution, um, the English majors of America who are presenting this program will love this. You know, the evolution of the word talent. The talent began as a unit of weight. In the Old Testament, we see it as a unit of weight. So, we don't know whether a talent of silver wouldn't be worth quite as much as a talent of gold, but it would be a lot because a talent was about 75 pounds. By the time of the New Testament, a talent has become not a unit of weight, but a unit of coinage. And so the coinage is what's going to give its value, and it is immense, and it's a huge amount of money for a talent. Um, you figure it out by how, much, uh, how many drachma are in a talent or a denarius, drachma and a denarius equivalent, and you figure out how many of those because a drachma was the, uh, the money that a, just a regular workman might wake, make in a full day, in an eight-hour day. So $15 an hour, eight-hour eight day, or probably a 12-hour day back then, you're coming up with that was the salary for that day. Then if um, you've got a, a thousands of denarius that make up a talent, you realize we're talking $600,000 for a talent. And then you multiply it out, this is a huge amount that he's entrusted to these. It's a big responsibility for these money managers. And what did they do with it? They need to be something in order to do something. The doing was, had to invest. If you really thought that I was a hard master, you would have taken what I gave you and given it to the bankers at least. It didn't mean that you had to trade with it and all that, but you would have at least put it in the bank and you would have brought me back what I gave you plus a little bit of interest. But no, you just buried it in the ground. So you did not invest. You tried to save your life rather than investing your life and you have nothing to show for it except your life. You foolish, you wicked lazy slave. You said, oh no, I I knew you were a hard man. I knew you reaped where you hadn't sowed, did all these things. And so, gosh, I was so nervous. I I wanted to bring back this talent. I wanted to make sure I was was a a good, good steward here. And basically, the master's saying, you're a liar. That wasn't what motivated you. Because you could have given it to the bankers and you would have done just as much. You would have been fine, but you would have at least risked it a little bit so that there might be a return on investment. Instead, you just buried it in the ground, and you did nothing. How about the other guys? Well, they were something else, so they did something else. They did invest. They did trade. They got active. In fact, in verse 16, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. At once. He didn't hesitate. It's like, okay, thank you, sir. Yes, yes, sir. I'll, I'll do what I can on this money. I'll, I'll, you won't, you won't uh, be disappointed. I'll give you your money back, and I, I think I can make some more with it. Thank you. And he gave him a free hand. Do what you want. At once, he went, and he began to trade. I bet he lost a few of those trades. He didn't gain big, but he kept going. He diversified probably. He did all this kind of stuff. And through his activity and his boldness, he was able to give 100% return on investment unbelievable because at once he started investing so he gets compounded interest going for him and he trades he does he's bold so if you're going to do if what you're going to do is invest what you're going to be is risky you're going to take some risk appropriate risk i hope i mean not just crazy risk 
but you're going to assume some risk in this world or else you're not going to be able to make any money. So you got to judge how much risk you're willing to take based on your age, your situation, how long your income stream is going to come in there. So, you know, be careful with that, but no risk, no reward. So be risking what God has given to you so that there might be a return on investment at the last day when he comes and he asks us for an account. So how can I get my head around that? We got to know something before you can be something and then do something. And that's where I was getting tripped up with this parable. This parable scares me to death. Or it used to scare me to death because it goes so well with what we know in some of these earlier parables about um, from him who has been given much, much will be required. You, know, you were given much, now much will be required. And we all should think we've been given a lot with where we've grown up. We, we, we are so rich. We're incredibly rich. Anyone living in the United States of America is rich by a world standard. In fact, I would encourage you to go to the website, say, how rich are you? It's something like that. If you plug it in, it'll tell you. If you plug in your annual salary, it'll tell you where you fall within the world population. I'm going to bet almost all of you are way over 90 percentile. So how, what do we do with that? What have we done with what we've been given? And I was also so nervous. And I'm from high school on, our school always made much of that, you know, from whom much has been given, much has been required, much will be required. If you've been given a lot, you boys, you all have a lot of, uh, you know, they, no, I wouldn't say boys. Men, you all have a lot of resources that you've been given. You need to make a lot with that. You need to do something with that. And uh, so a lot of pressure on you. Here's this parable. And they read the parable of the five talents. And what are you going to do with your talent, your time, and your treasure? How are you going to invest that? No one is. I feel this pressure to produce. And I know I'm not producing the way I should. I, I, I've been given so much, that, and I, I'm not given return on investment. And it just, it would put pressure, make me feel nervous. As a Christian, wound up way too tightly inside. So finally, realizing that more and more, I decided a couple of years ago, I'm going to do a study on Jesus as master to just see if I'm thinking correctly about this, looked up every verse about what is a master what, in, the, in the gospel accounts and realized that, you know, not every parable is trying to make the same point. Uh, and this parable is making one point. You're trying to make it make a whole lot of points. You're almost believing what this wicked, lazy slave said, that God is a very demanding, hard master who expects you to come, he's frowning all the time, just the facts, don't, I don't care about your personal life, I just want to know how much money did you make for me today. Okay, let's get on with it, you know, and that's, that's God, right? Because this is what the Bible says, that you're a hard man, you reap where you didn't sow. And finally, don't on me, and I, don't judge me, you've got your own areas of weirdness maybe, but oh, everybody knows that's not the way God is. Well, I, I let it leak in because of a lot of past and a lot of history that that's what God's like. That's not what our God's like. That's not what my Jesus is like. That's not the Jesus that Tim Russell knows. That's not correct. He's not a hard man. He's a good master. And just a few chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 18, verse 27, we read of another situation involving talents where this man who owed an insurmountable amount of money, I mean, it's, it's ludicrous. And Jesus is obviously making hyperbole when he talks about the debt that that man owed to his king. He uh, is forgiven. And that was just a breath of fresh air. Out of pity, the, the king, the master, forgave him, released him from prison and forgave him for the debt. He's a good master, a merciful master, a kind master. Now, we know what that, what that servant did after that. He went out and started choking his fellow servant who owed him just a, sh a small amount of money by comparison, mean, infinitesimally small by comparison. And when the master heard about that, then it was time to deal with the first guy who did not show mercy, even though he had been shown mercy. And so he gets thrown into outer darkness and all that. But David, 
how many times are you going to have to read the Bible, read this, to know Jesus is good? It's like the children asking about this lion, Aslan, is he safe? Who said anything about his being safe, Mr. Beaver replies to them. He's not safe, but he's good. He's good. You can trust him. He's good. If we know that our master is good and great, then we can be risky. We can take risks because we do not have to be constrained by what this second guy was constrained by, which is fear. I was afraid. So I took what you'd given me and buried it in the ground out of fear. I just, I didn't want to, I knew how you would react. I, so we have to ask ourselves, are we motivated today, driven today in our service for our master out of fear or out of great love? He's good. He's worth my effort, my all. I want to I pour it all out for him. I'm going to be bold. I'm going to take risks for his sake because I trust that he'll pick me up. He'll help me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or the, the Old Testament version of that in Psalm 18, 29. With your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Come on, be bold. And be bold today, serving him with the talents that he's given to you. Oh, so unit of weight then became unit of coinage. And now it becomes a statement about abilities that we've been given. So talent scout, it's all of that, it's based on this parable, but talent means something very different than a unit of weight or a unit of coinage now. All right, let's move on. We have a third like here, that the kingdom of heaven is like a royal shepherd. Well, the royal part, you'll see why it comes up, king comes up several times in kingdom, but it's really like a shepherd who is separating his flock, sheep from goats. Because, you know, the sheep got all that wool on them. They deal with the night air and the coolness of the night much more easily than the goats that don't have all that wool on them. So we got to put the goats in the enclosed um, area with, you know, four sides and a roof maybe. To, it's warmer in there. And sheep, they'll be fine out in the pen. But we separate them every night. We take them out, let them graze together, but then we separate them every night. So the kingdom of heaven will be like... Um, a shepherd separating the sheep from the goats. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not serve you or minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Another very sober parable, or well, is this really a parable? It, it's not technically a parable. It doesn't have all of the same um, 
characteristics of the normal parable. It is making a comparison, but it's more like, you know, let's cut the metaphor here. Let's go to this is what it's really going to be like on the last day when the king returns, the king being Jesus. And so when the Son of Man comes, a statement that's, that's straight out of Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, when the Son of Man comes, who is before the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, who is a king, and so we get an image and a glimpse of a king. Jesus preferred that term son of man to the king because it didn't have all the connotations around it that the king had, that great David's greater son is here, the Messiah is here. He's going to come in on a white horse. He's going to be a military leader. He's going to throw the Romans out on his ear. That's what this is going to be like. And Jesus didn't want all of that intertestamental um, tradition about him, mythology about him to be what was in people's minds. So he'd just say, the son of man. But the son of man did have that royal connotation in Daniel. There's just a much less well-known and more enigmatic phrase. Anyway, son of man is equated with the king here. So what we see is the scene when the king comes. It's not exactly like these other parables. It's, it's a little different, but here's the scene when he comes. And verses 31 to 33 um, tell us what goes on um, in that scene how it's all going to to fall together. All right, and then uh, we come from the scene, and I'm going to blitz here a little bit to get us through on time. Uh, We we start the dialogue. So it's it's like it's dramatic. Set the scene, see how cool that is. Um, And then we start the dialogue in verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. So we've read that. What will he say is what's in verse 34 and in verse 41. He says one thing to those on his right, the sheep. He says another thing to those on his left, the goats. Why does he say that? Well, he says it because in verses 35 and 36 in the first sentence, the reason um, is that I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger. Uh, or No, I'm sorry. In the first group, in verse 35, I was hungry, and you did give me food. I was thirsty, you did give me drink. I was a stranger, you did welcome me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. So that's why, come, enter into the kingdom that has been set apart for you. Oh, okay, I guess. But he says something very different to those on his left, that you're going to depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Clearly, talking about hell. Why? Because I was hungry and you gave me no food. Because I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. You gave me no welcome. You gave me no clothes. You gave me no visit, no help when I was in prison or sick. You didn't visit me. Now, how? How on earth can you say that, Lord? The righteous will answer him in verse 37. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And we'll come back to the next one in just a second. When when did all that happen? How, How can this be? And then the same, the surprise of the wicked. Like, wait, Lord, when, when did we do that? We, we didn't do that to you. We never even knew you. We didn't see you. We, 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 what? And he'll explain. And so the explanation um, is at the end, after the king comes, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This quick note there from verse 46, if you are among those who believes in heaven but does not believe in hell, verse 30, 46 is a problem, isn't it? If you want a place of eternal happiness, which we do in heaven, and we want to go and be with Jesus where there is no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, bring it on, Lord, please. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We want that. Well, the Bible says that there is an eternal destination that is like that. But there is another eternal destination as well, where there is eternal outer darkness, 
weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is eternal punishment and eternal life. And if that doesn't ramp up the stakes in our investing for our Lord, I don't know what will. Eternity is at stake. Not just, well, it'll, it'll set you back a few years. Your retirement portfolio is going to look a little worse if I do this versus doing that. No. If I do this versus doing that, you'll spend eternity apart from God in hell. But if I do this or I do that, you'll end up in eternity with God in heaven. Whoosh. Now, none of us has that power to put somebody one place or the other. But we do have to know, how do I interpret this parable so that I can get someone, someone that I love, to the proper destination? And maybe even myself. How can I be sure that I am going to have eternal bliss in heaven and not eternal punishment in hell? What's the point of this story? And the point is given, again, in two different places. In verse 40, here's the point for those that are called the righteous. The king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Those six different acts of righteousness that have been repeated four different times in this parable or in this section of scripture, those six acts of righteousness, when did I do those to you, Jesus? If you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Right, here are the main options, I would say. And there are other options. There are some with the dispensational theology view says that the least of these, these my brothers, refers to the 144,000 Jews who are saved during the tribulation. And so how nations treat those um, people of God, those Jews, during that period of tribulation will determine their eternal destiny. Um, that's J. Vernon McGee, you know, and so... That, that's one view. That's not, that's not one of the main views. Here are, I think, the main views that we have to choose between. The most prominent and common view is that the least of these, my brothers, is the same thing as saying the least of these, my neighbors, the least of the, any human being. To the degree to which you have shown compassion in tangible and practical ways, these six different forms of righteousness, with other human beings, that will determine your eternal destiny. Justification by love. Justification by being nice. Justification by doing good things. Because if the least of these, my brothers, refers to all neighbors, and then that's the message of this, and you hear that from a thousand pulpits in America today, that let's boil it down. What's really the judgment all about? It's about being sincere. So even if you are not a Christian, but you do these good things, you will be in heaven. The other view, my view, uh, the view of D.A. Carson and Leon Morris and Mark Ross and others is that, no, the least of these my brothers refers to my brothers, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that the key is relationship. And it's because of that relationship that they're surprised. It doesn't at all mean that we are not to love and serve all humanity. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves, right? Matthew 22 couldn't be clear on that, 36 to 40. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So love of neighbor is crucial to Christians. In the Old Testament, uh, he who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? And in the New Testament, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, have compassion on all people. Um, do good works to everyone, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we're supposed to do um, good deeds for all people. But here's a, a very important distinction for this passage. Righteous deeds done to the poor, to the neighbor, are done for Jesus that we do those things because we want to bring glory to you. We want our light to shine before people that they might see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. So yes, we ought to be a people characterized by good works. Look at Titus 2.14 through 3.14. Four different times there, we'll be told that we ought to be devoted to good works. That's how we ought to be as Christians. But those are deeds that are done for Jesus. These in this chapter are done 
to Jesus. This is when you show that you love Jesus. You're, it's how you are reacting to Jesus. So the righteous aren't expecting their good works to get them into heaven. Lord, why? What, when did we ever see you? Like, we're surprised. The surprise of both the righteous and the unrighteous is key to interpreting this parable correctly. They were not expecting to get good things or bad things, or the, the bad people were especially not expecting, like, what? No, we weren't that bad. We were doing kind of good things. We, I, I gave money to the um, Boys and Girls Clubs. I did, I did a lot of good things. What are you saying that I never? No, you didn't treat me well. When did I treat you? This is a lesson I learned early on in marriage, but one of the best ways to love someone is to love the ones they love. So you want to love your wife well? Love her family. Uh, you don't know my wife's family. They're weird. Like, love, your fa- love her family. If she loves them, you love them. Love the ones she loves. It will come back to you with great abundance of return on investment. Love the ones you love. Jesus definitely believes that. You want to love me? Love the ones I love. And I love them the same way I love you, by grace. Not because you're so lovable, but by grace. See, this parable is all about relationships. It's our relationship to the king that makes the difference here. If I have bowed to the king, if I have heard the call from the beginning of Matthew's gospel, remember back in chapter 1 with John the Baptist, or you know, chapter 3 with John the Baptist, and then um, chapter 4 with Jesus himself, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. If I have responded to that gospel message from John the Baptist or from Jesus, then I have begun a relationship with the king. I am in the kingdom. I am a son or a daughter of the kingdom because of my relationship with Jesus. And so what does God become? Oh, but God becomes your father at that point. And so the father gets mentioned in here. We have a relationship with the father because we have a relationship with God the son. And then there's a third relationship that's critical to this passage. I have a relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ whom I am to treat well. I don't treat my physical brothers and sisters and biological brothers and sisters that well. That's another story. I mean, that's got its problems too. But with your spiritual brothers and sisters, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all people know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So how do we, Jesus, when did we ever serve you in these six ways? When you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters. How you treat them is how you treat me. Now you say, well, that's kind of far-fetched. No, it's not. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Did Paul ever pick up a stone and throw it at Jesus? Did Paul ever arrest Jesus? No. Did Paul pick up stones or at least hold the the garments while others picked up stones and stoned Stephen? Yes. Did Paul ever arrest those just because they were Christians? Yes. Was he on his way to Damascus to arrest, to bring him back, maybe to kill him? Yes. Why are you persecuting me? If you're persecuting them, you're persecuting me. If you're feeding them, you're feeding me. If you're giving them something to drink, you're giving me something to drink. And not a cup of cold water will go unrewarded. So, how you treat your fellow believers is how you treat me. And what was the problem with the other group? You didn't do all of that for them. And you will regret the day that you were not kind to, supportive of, even the least of these, my brothers and sisters, So those countries where Christians are being actively persecuted, put to death, arrested, all of that, there will be a heavy price to pay for that for eternity unless they repent and they return and then like Stephen, like Jesus before him, those who have been persecuted in East Asia or South Asia or the Gulag or wherever will be saying, Lord, have mercy for they didn't know what they were doing. So, you need an application, a conclusion for the whole matter. What do, we, what do we do here? Verse 13 said, keep watch. Or I'll say, be ready. Be ever ready. Be always ready. Be risking. 
The point of comparison in verse 29. Be risking. Take risks with your life. Don't just try to have a safe life. Don't try to um, save your life because you will lose it. Rather, invest your life for Christ and for his kingdom, and you'll find that there will be a return on that investment. There will be fruit from it. Be ready. Be risking. Be righteous. How can I be righteous? You're telling me to do all these good works and that will make me righteous? No, I'm not. I'm saying be righteous because you know the righteous one who gives you his righteousness because what you know will determine who you are and who you are will determine what you do. So yes, be righteous. A good tree will bear good fruit just as a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. It'll bear bad fruit. That's just the law of the soil. And that's from Matthew chapter 7 again, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying the same point, that what you are determines what you do. But what's important here is to recognize that what you know will determine what you are. So, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that Jesus came to save sinners. Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the King and the Savior of sinners. I bow before you. Here's my life. Take me and use me however you want. And then he changes me. I am born again. I have a new heart. I am become a good tree, even though I've still got some bad. Yeah, we're struggling with all that, but we have been fundamentally changed, and we are new creatures now in Christ, and new creatures out of the abundance of their heart speak good words. So it's from the inside out that we live our lives. Thanks be to God that it was all of grace, and we inherit the kingdom that has been set apart for us by our Father from before the foundation. We don't earn it. We inherit it by grace. Let's pray. Father, there is much in these verses that is difficult to understand. And we've all had past experiences and past teaching that, that have made it even more difficult for us. Things that were subconsciously almost drilled into us, like my problem with to whom much has been given, much shall be required, and just the pressure that that put. Lord, would you correct our wrong thinking by the transformation of our minds as we have made ourselves living sacrifices for you? Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gospel. Now, Lord, please do strengthen us and embolden us that we might invest our lives for your kingdom rather than just trying to save our lives by, I know Jesus is Savior, but I'm not going to bow before him as Lord. That is not an option, Lord, and we know it from your word. So transform what we know so that we are transformed in who we are, which will transform what we do. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, thank you all.